Welcome back to BungaCast with Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare in the UK and myself, Alex Hochuli, in Brazil. This is the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. And we're joined once again by Ashley Frawley, also in the UK. Hello, Phil, George and Ashley. Hello. Hello. Hey. Well, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all in the UK, but different parts of the UK. Right. Different so that's why, that, that that's why you waited. Yeah. yeah um, also because I didn't it didn't work when i unclicked mute so anyway sorry about Good. that all, all very professional here um ashley um I, I think you know sounds sounds great but uh tells me that it's windy and there's bad internet there and that the wind is somehow complicit in the in the bad internet yeah i i don't know why but um i think it's because i live on a hill and um no one cares about us here and so we frequently get left with like weird brown water and uh, internet that flicks on and off. So that's my life. <laughs> well, you know, so that's that's a good repost to all the postmodernists who think we've conquered space, that geography doesn't matter. A place place still very much um, still very much matters, I guess. Um, anyway, so this, this wind in question, I guess, is quite appropriate because it's, you know, it's the wind of progress, but we're, we're <laughs> facing backwards, looking at the single catastrophe that keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage behind us. Um, <laughs> Which is very appropriate because this is wow. our um, slightly belated review of 2022 and also our look forward to uh, what to expect in 2023. Um, so just to get this started, uh, I wanted to actually flash back even beyond 2022, um, flash back to the uh, debacle of the U.S.'s withdrawal from Afghanistan, something that we discussed on this podcast at the time. At that, Around then, at the end of 2021, uh, you had Western and U.S power, um, seemingly in, in retreat, um, while the leading fraction of those states were running out of gas on the thing that um, was providing them some legitimacy, which is to say their latest emergency, which was the pandemic. Flash forward to the beginning of 2022, and we have the key event of this of, of this past year, uh, which was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that uh, changed matters quite significantly beyond obviously the obvious reality of the war, um, but also in terms of uh, the sense of Western and US power on the wane. Um, because Russia invaded, of course, but it expected its special military operation to be victorious in a matter of weeks. And instead, what we've seen is its early gains rolled back and it's a bit of a quagmire. Uh, in fact, I mean, you know, you could compare this to uh, the US, US's invasion of Iraq, expecting this shock and awe to be over in, in a matter of days or weeks, uh, only to find this war uh, rolling on. And we don't know um, when it will end. So because of that, the liberal establishment of Western nations is riding pretty high on its military crusade and its borrowed nationalism, um, kind of borrowing Ukrainian nationalism. So to kind of turn back to the beginning of the year, um, I think it's worth maybe restating how dramatic, Phil, the shift from COVID to Ukraine was at the at the very start of last year. Yeah. So the um, 
I mean, I suppose the thing that was most striking was just how quickly it rolled in um, from one to the other. You know, kind of there was um, barely a beat. Um, so, but, you know, all that said, I mean, I think the most, still the most, the thing that strikes me most about it is how the war on terror, you know, the kind of the first theater of the war on terror in Afghanistan, just as that ended, a new conflict began. And one which was going, you know, which is proving to be much more successful for the Americans, at least. Um, and, uh, you know, for American military weaponry. And so I suppose, you know, the way in which it scrubbed clean the slate is really impressive. So we don't hear, you know, the massacres now that we hear about, about are the ones by Russian troops rather than, say, you know, bombing Afghan wedding parties or special forces raiding villages and killing civilians. Um, at the same time as, you know, the kind of the American weaponry that wasn't able to subdue um, Afghan goat herders and shepherds and drug lords now is, you know, kind of um, dramatically kind of holding off the Russian advance. And it's the Russian weaponry that is unable to subdue Ukrainians. So, you know, the kind of the way in which the um, the narrative, to use that kind of tedious media term, but the way in which the narrative dramatically shifted and from defeat to heroism and glory and military prowess and victory um, in you know less than a year. That's really quite something. So, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about the war, but Ashley, I, I wondered what your thoughts were in terms of this shift from, well, one, from one emergency to another, something that we've discussed before, but I think in retrospect, maybe we can try to, um, you know, kind of put it in, in kind of qualitative terms, what, whether there was a difference in the nature of emergency um, that the Ukraine war presented versus uh, versus what we went through with COVID. Yeah, what's um, a bit disturbing about it is that in a weird way, it wasn't surprising. Um, I remember I was out for dinner um, in a brief moment of freedom with a few friends of mine, just sort of at the tail end of the pandemic. And one of my friends said, uh, who thinks a war is coming? Um, and we all put up our hands <laughs> and he and he said, really? I said, yeah, either a war is coming or they have to find a way to drag out these restic- restrictions for 10 years and no one's going to stand for that. Um, and the reason why is, and this is not something I would stake my life on. It's not something I've written about. It's more a hunch that I have, um, you know, for, for many years, as all good Marxists do, I had been, um, predicting a, a crisis, uh, an enormous, <laughs> extremely destructive crisis. <laughs> As one should, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the old joke, what is it? Uh, Marxists have predicted um, 10 out of every, out of the last five crises or whatever. Um, but I had always been telling my students, you know, when I was teaching economics in society, this module that I, that I give, and I was talking about economic crisis and the different sort of countervailing tendencies. And I said, well, one of the things that can be done and that has been done and arguably how we got out of the second world, uh, sorry, out of the um, Great Depression was war, you know, just like flatten entire continents. Um, It's an enormous amount of devaluation. And you had like an enormous crisis that led to a huge amount of destruction in terms of people being out of work for uh, a decade immiserated and followed by an enormous um, worldwide war, obviously. And this led to a boom that lasted 
I don't know, 20 years or something like that, which is terrifying. And I, and this is always something that really freaked me out since about, since the 2008 crisis. And I thought, well, you know, the, the amount of devaluation hasn't been enough here. Um, we are, they're just kicking the can down the road. Something big has to happen to devaluate, devalue enough capital. Um, and I thought there's there's going to be a humongous crisis, and I think there's going to be a war. And I told my students that uh, again and again. And when the pandemic hit, I I thought this is interesting because the response to it was something like I don't know. It was an enormous amount of destruction, capital destruction. You know, you saw like small businesses um, get uh, thrown aside and bought up for very cheap. This sort of thing was going on. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this could go on for a really long time. It's better than a war, but it, it wasn't enough. Um, and so when my friend asked me that over dinner, I thought, yeah, probably if we're, if we get out of this pandemic, it'll, we'll probably get tossed into a war. And I asked the, and I was surprised that so many people at the table put their hands up and I said, can I ask you, what's your, what's your background? And he said, well, you know, I shouldn't say this as a journalist, but I'm an old Trotskyist. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, maybe we're, we're thinking along the same lines. But as I said, I wouldn't, it's not something I've written about. It's really just a hunch based on, you know, reading old Marxist texts, you know, capital volume three and this sort of thing. But this is, this is what I suspected would happen. Um, and it's not something that anybody plans or anybody really wants. Um, but the, um, the pressures are so strong that it pushes things in this, in this direction. So it wasn't entirely... Um, you know, surprising in a weird way. And I don't think it should be surprising when, even though nobody wants escalation at the same time, people flirt with escalation because it's necessary. Yeah. I mean, it was, we were debating, I think at the time, um, and I remember maybe George having a different uh, view to, to mine, but that, um, you know, the regulations and restrictions and everything that was brought in with the pandemic would in somehow in some way be made permanent even if some of the um, most extreme elements would be reduced um i mean do you reassess what you what you thought at the time george or um you think that it kind of had a permanent um kind of permanent consequence so you ask me was i was i wrong will i engage in some <clears throat> auto critique i think no i think the what is or what was really sort of or in retrospect is really striking is you had the that kind of emergency politics going very smoothly from from covid to the war in ukraine and then you know probably to the next the next emergency which might be climate emergency because mm -hmm. the underlying like mechanism of this is that whatever states need now to legitimize themselves it's not you know it's not based in the citizenry it's not based in that kind of like mass um I don't know, mass agreement in a political line. It's purely in, intra-elite like legitimacy. So you have this movement from whatever happened with COVID to a very quick change in the narrative, if you want to put it that way, to the war in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, it makes me think this is, you know, you could see the next thing crop up really, really quickly. Um, will the COVID restrictions become permanent? I think in a way they, they have. I don't want to be too like, oh, I was right in a mystical way. Because obviously some of the actual um, public health restrictions have disappeared, but I think the underlying like what it's changed is these sorts of, I guess, flawless authoritarianism, um, you might call it, seems to be um, a pretty effective 
like ideology and you can see it potentially morphing to the next the next stage in you know we'll we'll see what 2023 looks like but it seems like there is a you know that basis now there I mean, it, it is, you do see these headlines popping up every once in a while. And so just to take one from, I think, from yesterday or today, which was that the UK's health security agency, the head of that agency said that the future path of the pandemic is less predictable than when COVID-19 first hit because of the number of new variants and the virus will, will continue to taunt us for years to come. Now, I don't know what, I mean, taunts are, are the type of thing you shouldn't respond to normally. So um, I don't know what the what, what the political takeaway is from that. But I think those things always seem to me and read as um, kind of uh, attempts by certain kind of sectoral bodies in health in this case being like, hey, remember us, we're still um, we're still important here when the kind of agenda has has moved on. Um, I think to me that speaks more to the kind of um, the sort of hyper political situation of, um, you know, kind of constant contestation, but where it shifts from one thing to another so quickly that the you know that the current thing is never entirely graspable um and so yeah i don't know we'll we'll, we'll get on to kind of predictions about 2023 um towards the end of this about what what the next kind of current thing is um but i wonder um what are, what you know what everyone's take is on this on the kind of that sort of slipperiness and the sort of um the slipperiness of of what the current thing is and the way in which um different actors try to kind of make claims to kind of get back um on the get back on the front page effectively ashley yeah i I think it's interesting that what you said about um that things shift so quickly we never really get our head around what happened and i was thinking as we were talking you know i hadn't talked about the pandemic in such a long time it felt so distant from me like it was it was like, oh, that's not the current thing anymore. Why, why are you even talking about that? And and all the, you know, as somebody who does a lot of writing for for different publications, you know, editors were already on to the next thing, and it, it was old news. Nobody want, and I was like, oh shit, now I gotta know about this. <laughs> I gotta know about this new thing, and I have to get my head around it. And uh, and, and it's just it it just seems to happen, yeah, as you said so quickly, which is it's a bit strange because it seemed like the pandemic was so drawn out. And everyone was trying so hard to wrap their head around what was going on. We began to have these debates. And we, in fact, we had just really begun to have debates because for a while it was totally uh, beyond the pale to voice. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but if you voiced any kind of um, opinion that differed from the experts, that was it for you. You were sort of blacklisted. And yet we, we started to have these more open conversations. And then it was over and we were on to the next thing. Um, but yeah, I just that's what you have to do to stay relevant. And so it's almost like our kind of media landscape mitigates against retrospectives. Yeah, no, that's right. And I think that, you know, kind of, um, when I you mean, have... there is an irony in, in saying that whilst we're kind of doing a retrospective. Well, that's ourselves. what I thought. I thought, <laughs> no, well, you're being no. so fashionably, un, <laughs> you know, untimely. I thought maybe this yeah. is what this podcast does. <laughs> well, that, I mean, you know, we, we, you know, the the kind of poncy way to put it is, you know, um, periodizing the present or, you know, historicizing the present. And so, um, I think looking back on 2022, it's kind of a way of, um, you know, stamping what actually did happen rather than kind of constantly chasing, chasing the new thing. It's more, but it's more than that though as well. It is also that point about seeing, you know, seeing the connection, seeing the, um, 
seeing the seeing um, the connections, man. <laughs> well, you know, like it's I don't want to be like the meme. We're, we're gonna get onto like conspiracy the theory, from, theories later on. I don't want to be like the meme from "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia." You know, the when Charlie's kind of drawing all the things all over the board. But I mean, the point being, you know, that the um, the way in which um, military defeat was turned into kind of you know proxy victory or at least um, proxy military glory. Yeah, that was really striking. Um, the war on terror, you know, kind of drawing to a close at the same time as the pandemic kind of, um, you know, kind of emerged. And then also the pandemic drawing to a close as uh, the war broke out in Ukraine uh, um, with the Russian invasion. So I think because those are things which are disparate, you know, they're different, but they're um, the role that they play politically in the in Western societies is so similar um, yeah, that's worth drawing attention to. And that can only really yeah. be done in, in this way. You know, you can only really do it looking back. It's not so, something you can do without being willing to kind of stake it. So, I mean, I think the uh, kind of one of the new narratives, although I, I remember listening to something recently, someone saying, why are we always seeing narratives rather than claims? Um, so I'm going to say claim because it's, it's far more precise and it's something that can be refuted, whereas a narrative is just this sort of free-floating thing where you can never attribute agency. So anyway, there's, a, you know, this claim is that actually things are kind of better than we expected. All this terrible stuff has happened where um, we've had inflation, we've had to raise interest rates, low growth economy, we've got war, pandemic, etc. And actually, things are kind of okay. Um, so, I mean, just to grab one quote. This Wait, is, you um, said this? So, so I mean, I think it's a, it is a narrative that is emerging um, amongst elite institutions. But just to give you one, uh, one thing which I took from the Financial Times today, um, citing a participant at Davos, uh, which is uh, the head of JP Morgan's investment bank, who said... Wait, wait, how did you pronounce it? How do I pronounce what? Uh, <laughs> JP Morgan. I th- no, 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 the other thing. Davos. I think it's Davos, you'll I find, think, actually. I, I actually will um, will bet you $100 that it is pronounced Davos and not Nobody Davos. says Davos. Nobody well, says Davos. the country where Davos is. Davos, man. It's a, glo- <laughs> it's a globalist meeting, Alex. It doesn't matter what well, country it that takes is, place in. That is in. an incredible consens- concession to, to the Anglo-American empire. Um, and it's and it's cultural hegemony. I will not submit anyway. So let me get on with this. Um, so this obviously um, top banker says we have come through a period with a war, a pandemic and the biggest normalization of monetary policy in history. Consider all the things that have happened. Uh, the world is a lot better than you would have expected. Um, hmm, interesting. A lot better. Um, similarly, uh, uh, Rula Kalaf, the FT's editor, was pretty sanguine about the situation in Europe, feeling that actually Europe had got out of this energy price squeeze quite well, had extricated itself from Russian dependence, and that everything was more or less okay. Um, so anyway, it, it, it's kind of remarkable um, that there seems to be this, this you know, and then obviously there's a lot of kind of Davos watching going on, or Davos watching, if you prefer, um, <laughs> going on to try to... Um, try to ascertain exactly what um, kind of elite institutions and representatives are are thinking. But I don't know if you what you guys think of this, this sort of narrative that's emerging of um, actually we, we, we've kind of got off okay. Um, we expected worse. Um, we've kind of leaving populism behind and, and things are kind of okay. Hey, it's always, I mean, you know, compared to what, you know, like, I mean, I mean, if you did think, you know, Trump was a fascist about to kind of take over America and turn it into the Fourth Reich, then, you know, sure, things are good. Um, 
you know, I mean, it's so it's difficult to get a it's difficult to get a grip on just how slippery some of these discussions are. I mean, so much of our contemporary society is, I think, genuinely dystopian by any kind of um, meaningful reference point. But, you know, I mean, well, well, most meaningful reference points. But then on the other hand, you know, the reference points that we have are kind of, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, like uh, inherited from the middle of the 20th century. And so because, you know, we've got kind of um, mobile phones and uh, TVs and the Gestapo isn't kicking our door down or whatever, you know, you feel like, okay, well, you know, things aren't that bad, you know. So It's also also worth just saying that you know this part of this is the politics of fear that you know things are never going to be as bad like as bad as to take brexit sorry for as a, as an example like it was never going to be as catastrophic as predicted the estimations of like how many billion people were going to die during the covid pandemic that was obviously you know inflated for political reasons so it's like there is a there is a mechanism at work here which is like let's let's say that things are going to be as bad as possible and when they're only just pretty bad it's like yeah that's a that's a win. Also, it's probably worth saying for the the divorce man, um, you know, things probably are pretty good for that kind of class of people. They've they're actually probably doing pretty well and even better than they were a few years ago. I mean, I don't think many people would share this claim or narrative, however you want to put it, that you know things are actually fine. Although I guess maybe the backstop is they're not, you know, there's not complete nuclear war. So you've got to sort of take that as a as a as somewhat of a positive, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously there's part of it is the lesson that policymakers have learned since at least I don't know, the 1980s was when there's a risk, it's much better to big it up than to downplay it. It's much better to stoke fear than to try to encourage people to be calm. Because obviously, if things go better than expected, um, you can say, oh, well, because we acted quickly, <laughs> we have ameliorated the issue. Whereas if things go worse, you're in trouble for t- telling people to calm down. So there's part of that is in that they they bigged up the risks so that they could say, well, every action that we took averted disaster. Um, although that's not really how the narrative went. It was now it seems to me, maybe it's just the dark corners of the internet in which I dwell, but it seems to me that the narrative or the claim has been uh, that we uh, that there was a, a panic that it was overblown um, from from the beginning. But anyways, but I think also in terms of what you're saying about Davos was um, it's there is this this sense of um, relief, like woof, um, Trump is gone. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a risk anymore. The technocrats are back in charge. The adults are back in the room, um, and you know in the UK there's. Uh, going to be a retreat from democracy where people people now are saying oh uh you know the tories are doing so terribly this is great for labor and i was like who in their right mind would vote for <laughs> labor i'm sorry um what's gonna happen it's not like labor looks any better is you're going to see people sort of retreat from from politics they're they're not gonna if there's election an election anytime soon they're not gonna show up and that's great for people in power, this is this is back to business as usual. Uh, you know, where they were complaining for years about apathy and doing all these stupid things that they learned probably from focus groups, trying to like light a fire under people, and then people really did have a fire lit under them, and they were like, "Oh no, 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 that's not what we meant. We meant like uh, you come out to our community meeting and raise your hand sometimes. I don't, yeah. I don't want all these these demands." And so, you know, they're hoping that it'll be back to business as usual. 
I don't actually think that's going to happen. George? No, no, I think it just it just kind of struck me, this idea of like business as usual. This, I think, is how the political class actually think. I think they're like business speak, I think does pervade some of this um, approach to politics, the return. And that is like part and parcel of the desire to return to the kind of post-political 90s and early noughties. And it's like, yeah, we need to manage expectations. We need to say that things are going to be really bad so we can under-promise and over-deliver. And I don't know if that's how... <clears throat> all corporate all kind of you know political strategists talk um but certainly there is an element of like that's how they that's how they think and why you know why not why not make people think it's going to be bad as possible and then if you can make it any less bad than that you're good yeah if you want to predict how a policymaker is going to respond to the next year just go ask chat the chat bot go ask chat gpt any question you want go ask them and you will get the exact response like rishi mm. sunak's big vision speak speech it looked like it was written by that bot, but with the the phrase like the command put in, but dumber. No, no, make it make it dumber. Three word sentences <laughs> only. You know, make it look like a dumb human did it, not yeah, yeah. not not a smart uh, machine. That's 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 it, it, the machine thinks like that because it's just fed a whole bunch of phrases that don't mean anything. It's the exact same thing with these bureaucrats, these and then policymakers. They for such a long time, they're so used to outsourcing all responsibility and all thought somewhere else they're completely unused to having to think about things in any kind of meaningful way so they sound like just this bot spitting out bureaucratic management speak speak yeah and i mean you know i guess that um contrast with the dystopian language or the you know the warnings of imminent doom um and i'm gonna go to phil on this because he has the word disaster written on the wall behind him which is kind of weird kind of a bit ominous but um so i mean I guess there's three positions on on dystopia. One, this is dystopia now. Two, um, dystopia is around the corner, um, unless dot dot dot, uh, or you know, um, this is already dystopia because the disaster already happened, right? Um, and I mean, I know Phil kind of has you know has even written a book arguing that the disaster already happened, though it was a long time ago, um, several decades ago. Um, and I I used to kind of I, I would hold to this as well, though I. The idea that we're currently in dystop in dystopia, which is a kind of a a trope of sort of slightly lefty doomer memes, was also something that I saw shared by Elon Musk. So he 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 shared a a, a Venn diagram of three concentric not the concentric three three overlapping circles. Um, 1984, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, and you are here, you know, at the at the center of it. Um, so obviously, even for Elon Musk, he he you know. This is an actually existing dystopia, and that actually made me maybe think twice about what the the role and purpose and function of of dystopian thinking is today. So, just for listeners, um, kind of uh, who's piqued by Alex's remark, I'm podcasting um, from the from a meeting room at my work, and so it has uh, disaster mentioned um, on some of the publicity material behind me. Um, no, I think, you know, I think there is a, um, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that we, you know, in, that we live in that kind of overlapping Venn diagram. I'm not quite sure that would be accurate. Um, but the, you know, the kind of Oceania has always been at war with Eurasia vibes are very strong at the moment, you know, with the kind of new Cold War and um, the way in which the kind of... Uh, the Russophobia has kicked in so um, 
seamlessly. You know, it seems after 30 years of the Cold War being over, it suddenly, you know, snapped back into place politically so easily. So all of that is very, um, you know, all of that is kind of very striking and obvious. But like I say, I think people's image of dystopia, and it's not just Elon Musk, I mean, you know, like, um, but the image of dystopia is like, uh, it's apocalypse, you know, like it's um, like The Last of Us. I watched the first episode of the new kind of TV show about a zombie apocalypse taken from the computer sh- series. You know, and so people's kind of expectations, I suppose, and, you know, perhaps there's an element to which the way in which these dystopian tropes function is to make people, people's standards are oriented around particular kinds of things. And so if they're oriented around thinking of dystopia, you know, either as kind of... Um, North Korean style totalitarianism or total apocalypse and destruction of civilization, then, you know, you're willing to countenance the complete shredding of civil liberties, um, you know, high tech surveillance, industrial scale kind of uh, bureaucracy manipulating all parts of uh, everyday life. And to be grateful because you've got kind of still the ability to consume at a high standard. You've got a reasonable standard of living, um, you know, all of those things. And it's interesting. I mean, I know this is one of the topics we'll come on to, but what's striking about it is really the, you know, the thing that people could fall back onto, um, in, you know, throughout the war on terror and um, throughout the kind of the glorious kind of period of um, peak neoliberalism is, you know, they had cheap credit, cheap money, uh, and it's the cheap money that's gone. And quite, you know, quite strikingly, suddenly, social conflict and distributional conflict is back on the agenda in the West. And that is a really kind of striking correlation. The thing that kept it all together was, um, yeah, it was cheap money. No, that's good. We're going to come on to that. But just to coin a slogan, neither North Korea nor Somalia, but actually existing Western dystopia. That is uh, that is the slogan for, for today. It's a good one. I need some work, I think, but well done, Alex. We can workshop yeah. it. We can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe a focus group, a little focus mm, group of yeah. Bunga listeners. We can get them together. Exactly. Um, just briefly, before we um, turn to, to other matters, just lastly on the war. So there was this um, interview uh, carried out by, by a former communist, Emmanuel Todd, in, in uh, Le Figaro in France, which um, kind of did the rounds. I shared it on Twitter. Um, which uh, he argues that we're already in a third world war, effectively, um, which which might be uh, sound to you an, uh, an overblown claim, but I think the details of it are, are interesting. Basically, the idea is that um, Russia has, uh, despite facing a potential quagmire in, in Ukraine, it has actually withstood sanctions pretty well, and that there is still an ongoing weakening of the U.S., what is interesting about this is that the immediate effect is that it strengthens U.S. empire's hold on its initial protectorates. So Todd notes that the U.S. and Australia have already lost all national autonomy and the rest of Europe is next. Moreover, the kind of ground has been paved for this um, by being increasingly culturally integrated into the United States via the Internet. So I thought that was um, in, an interesting way about thinking of the events of 2022 and leading into today, which is that um, for all that there might be a sort of fragmenting of the U.S. empire, growing geopolitical competition, the kind of new Cold War, if not quite a new Third World War, that one of the effects of it is actually to draw Europe in closer to the United States rather than um, kind of spiraling off as part of the fragmentation. 
Yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, it's something which has been noted is um, in a number of places is, you know, kind of uh, that the Americans have basically seized control of Western Europe, you know. Um, uh, the, all the kind of, all the kind of chit-chat and fantasizing about so-called European strategic autonomy has been shot to pieces. NATO is the only dog in town at the same time as, you know, kind of Western Europe is going to become dependent if it's not already dependent on liquefied natural gas. So, I mean, I mean, the Todd interview, or really, I've not read the Todd interview in the French, but the um, English reports of it. I think, I mean, you know, he's he's a very interesting guy. He's a very smart guy. And his, um, I think his perspective is a bit uneven on this question. I mean, I think it would be a bit like kind of saying the Cold War was itself a third world war. And there's an element of truth to that, you know, like it does have some of those elements of um, um, the Orwellian kind of vision of perpetual war, um, which is the huge power blocks, which never actually destroy each other, but are constantly in tension and fighting on their borders. There's an element, you know, that which is true, but it doesn't really, you know, relabeling it as an act of war rather than a Cold War or proxy war doesn't really take us much further, except perhaps to underscore its genuinely kind of dystopian, dystopian aspect. Um, so I think you know from what I've seen, I think he probably under he overstates Russian um, success, uh, economic success, and um, political success, and also understates American strength. But notwithstanding that, you know it's uh, it's worth. I mean, it's worth checking out for listeners who haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I mean, but I, I guess the thing, um, regardless, and I think something we we've talked about is you know the kind of kind of Western cultural integration, ironically, um, at the at the supposed decline of the West, um, is that you know the unity, I guess, of of Western ruling classes is greater than it was you know at the time of let's say two decades ago at the time of the Iraq War. Um, and connected to this is this sense, and I think, you know, Ashley's already mentioned uh, or made reference to this, but it's sort of the, the return of liberal technocracy in a way, um, the way that you have, you know, Biden riding, <laughs> Biden riding high, um, Lula uh, defeating Bolsonaro, Rishi Sunak in place of Boris Johnson, Macron having seen off Le Pen, um, Duterte, you know, maybe the Philippines not so central, but uh, limited to one term only. So he's gone. Um you know, to, to the extent that uh, there was a report put out um, by the Tony Blair Institute, so you know only the finest sources that we cite here at BungaCast, <laughs> that uh, that this report repel and rebuild, expanding the playbook against populism, um, which claims that the number of populist leaders is at a twenty-year low. One point seven billion people were living under a populist leader at the start of twenty twenty-three, compared with two point five billion in twenty twenty, um, and. Uh, and, the, and it goes on to develop this idea that um, the remaining examples of populist governments around the world, uh, that is to say seven out of 11, almost entirely comprise right-wing cultural populists, as opposed to economic or anti-establishment populists. So anyway, I, actually, I wanted you to comment on this because I think there's just so much to unpick there from... Well, yeah, uh, because anybody who's an economic populist, anyone who... <laughs> Uh, anybody on the left has already sold out to technocracy a long time ago. And this is what people who have populist governments have been, you know, if you go all the way back to you know the end of the USSR, all the communists were competing with each other to show who could be more capitalist, who could be show more openness 
to market reform. So look, we're modernized, forget about all that old stuff. And of course, this was pragmatic. There was no going back, obviously. But the people in those countries rejected this new, their new technocratic overlords again and again and again. And you can see in the um, uh, well, Eastern European countries, there's quick turnover of governments because each government, each hopeful government anyway, would come in and say, we, are, we will overturn these policies um, that are coming from on high uh, that you don't like and that are immiserating you. And as soon as they would come into uh, power, inevitably they would backtrack on that. Um, and so populism is partially uh, a result of the fact that, well, no matter how many times we voted somebody, look at like the, the, the prime example of this, of course, is Syriza, right? Who is a left-wing government that comes in on this promise that they are going to stand up to the technocrats. And of course they did not, they could not. Um, and so what are your options? Um, there's nobody left on the left anyway, who hasn't imbibed almost entirely the neoliberal consensus, uh, the technocratic consensus that we'll leave all of that up to the people who know better and we can have our fights about gender identity or whatever it is, and that'll be the big issues. And people don't want that. And so they think that the populist threat is over, but I don't think it is because people have been fighting yeah. against these policies for like, what, 30 years? And they're not going to give up now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do really feel that there is a bit of a fork in the road that the, you know, populist decade, and maybe we can even go and say, you know, that's 2011 to 2022 or whatever it might be, or maybe to only to 2019. I don't know how we want to date it. But that, to a certain extent, that not that populism is is uh, kind of going away. Um, and I t entirely agree with what you said, Ashley. It's more a sense that it might kind of mutate into something else because um, mm. any of the elements, as you already noted, of the kind of more leftist or anti-establishment energy has um, been frittered away and the left has turned to, um, at worst, the kind of, you know, debates over gender um, and at best, uh, a kind of def narrow defense of liberal democracy, um, which is completely inadequate and often um, sometimes even authoritarian in its own right in terms of limiting uh, the, the the field of possibilities. So well, maybe maybe I'm just projecting, maybe it's wishful thinking, but <laughs> the amount of energy that I saw, you know, in during the lockdowns, sort of uh, uh, just amongst regular people who were like, no, hold on a second now. I can make a decision about what I do with my life and with, you know, what, what goes into my body and all that kind of stuff. I thought, I thought it was a really sort of positive kind of push. And it was, it was really easy to kind of see how that would move over into a kind of democratic will, a, a, an unwillingness to give up. But, you know, people can be worn down and maybe that, that, um, energy will just dissipate or, or, or can be redirected toward, you know, meaningless culture wars. I've noticed too, like my husband is really <laughs> very offline kind of person. <laughs> and um, even he is starting to get like videos appearing on his, a few times he goes onto social media, he gets videos about like these leftists the, and he shares them with me because he knows I'm, he vaguely knows that I'm against this kind of thing. It's like these leftists, they want to make it so your kids are going to turn gay and cut off their mm. genitals and so on. And he's like, is this true? And I'm like, what the hell? What is this doing? <laughs> and I think that's, you know, this very obvious kind of 
way of riling people up about something really stupid. And I, I'm, I'm imputing that with a lot more agency than it actually has. But you can see that it's just sort of getting filtered down into these meaningless kind of culture wars. And maybe that's where it ends. Who knows? I mean, yeah. just, just on this kind of <clears throat> the repel and rebuild slogan of the Tony Blair Institute, I mean, I think I'd have a sort of slightly different maybe reading of of kind of the pandemic to Ashley to a certain extent in that I think there was a lot of energy which was kind of oppositional, but the overall effect of, I've made this point before, but I think it is worth repeating that, you know, the overall effect of, of COVID was to demobilize people and was to kind of dissipate some of that energy. And at least in the British kind of case, it came directly after Brexit, basically. And it was like, okay, here's a, here's a kind of a threat to liberal technocracy. And it was a pretty effective response, I think. So I think it was a good, from the point of view of the liberal technocrats, <clears throat> it was a good way to kind of dissipate some of that energy to to kind of manage it and to, you know, pave the way for repelling and, and rebuilding, which I think has been somewhat successful. Just to go, I just wanted just to loop back just quickly to um, to what Ashley said about the, um, you know, the way the kind of the abolish the family discourse filters down into um, memes and online culture wars so that um, even, you know, like you were saying, Ashley, your husband who isn't, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, online with the uh, Twitter left Twitter warriors about the iniquities of uh, the modern patriarchy and so on, he still kind of sees the backwash of some of these debates. It reminded me, so I mean, I was struck by that with, um, I don't know if you saw this, Ashley, but there was, um, you know, Verso, the uh, left publishing house, had this um, tweet where they said abolish the family oh, yes. as part of their campaign for their Christmas catalog or their winter catalog. They had a nice kind of Christmas bauble in their publicity and abolish the family above it. Um, and so Alex, um, brave, you know, the brave kind of insurgent against the modern left that he is, he tweeted back. Free he retweeted speech warrior. It, uh, free speech warrior. And he said he, <laughs> he hates that so much. It's great. I only wish listeners could see his face right now. <laughs> he tweeted back saying, abolish the new left. And then you had this slew of people responding to him in the in the comments. Um, and very clear, like, you know, there are plenty of the online left who genuinely would sooner abolish their families than they would abolish the new left. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was, you know, like, so that it's a, it's an odd, you know, it's a very odd thing. Um, but I think it does have to be accounted for, you know, you've got kind of, so these are, you know, they, they, uh, the left kind of harks back to, you know, mid 19th century debates among socialists yeah, and um, they're very, talking very about early, right? Like they were, they were yeah. citing Marx and Engels and saying, "Well, of course, you know, this has been a long-standing thing. It's not a new left thing." Um, yeah. A long-standing disastrous thing that we really want to replicate. No, it's <laughs> it's because it's it's genuinely fascinating. I think you know, so because you know, so they're kind of invoking with you know with panache and uh, erudition, and um, you know, kind of uh, they know, you know, they know, they know their. Um, all their appropriate quotes, you know, from from the classics. But they're talking about mid-19th century kind of um, socialist debates inspired by utopian socialism and so on um, in the midst of, like, um, early industrialization, destroying um, family life, particularly working-class family life in the UK, and how kind of, um, you know, Marx and Engels responded to that, and they're kind of a pl and invoking it to, um, to make the case. Now, it's so... 
it's so twisted and weird. And I, you know, I think there, but there is something to explain there, which is why the millennials hate their families so much. Uh, And this is that is is something which needs to be accounted for. This is what I was talking about, where movements have entirely imbibed the neoliberalism without realizing that they have, because they have this really caricatured understanding of neoliberalism, which is neoliberalism is when state does nothing. No. Yes. (laughs) Um, So they, what happens with neoliberalism is that they have this because they believe that individual behavior is so important because the family is so important. There's this idea that, oh, okay, well, we should push back against that by saying, no, uh, it's not important. And, And families are really bad places. But what you don't understand is that the family for them is so important because it accounts for so many social problems. That's the only narrative that they have. That's one of the only narratives that they have to explain why things go wrong is because you make bad choices. You raise your children incorrectly. And it's not neoliberalism isn't when the state doesn't intervene. Paradoxically, it must intervene because the only rationale that it has for why things go wrong is because you do the wrong thing. So they have to intervene at crucial points. That's why they're obsessed with things like um, uh, transitions. You know, you go through these this literature, governments are obsessed with key transitions, uh, World Bank obsessed with transitions, World Health Organization, all about transitions. Why? Because that's the, when choices are made. And they think there's this social problem because you are making the wrong choices. You cannot act rationally. They think that the human uh, will must be shaped by the outside technocratic knowledge that you don't have access to. And that's why you're making these mistakes. So paradoxically, the family is important because it cannot be left to its own devices. People cannot be left to raise their children as they choose. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, so that, I do, that's I, why they intervene a humongous amount and why the family... So they, when the, the left starts banging on about the family, they repeat these same kinds of ideas about, oh, the family is where all these bad things go on behind closed doors. And... Um, I actually debated Sophie Lewis, who was the author of that book that Verso mm. was pushing with that uh, Christmas um, meme. And she was going on and on about, oh, all this sexual assault happens. It's not because like families are this horrific institution that capitalists impose on us so we can all experience horrors. Like the, the, it, like most car accidents happen when you're within the vicinity of your home, not because the vicinity of your home is terribly dangerous, but because that's where you are going to be most frequently. And so if you're going to be in an accident, that's probably where it's going to happen. So in order to undo that, you would need to undo human closeness, human close relationships. If someone is going to be a predator, they're going to be opportunistic. It's going to happen within families. You're never going to overcome that by abolishing the family. That's insane. You'd have to abolish all human all human closeness. Um, but about the, the going back to the Communist Manifesto and so on. So just to make the point clearer, um, they want to abolish the family because they have imbibed this um, neoliberal discourse, which breaks down the family and makes all these claims about problems happening in the family, starting there um, as a... Uh, a rationale for intervention to go in and sort of change people's behaviors and so on. And they think, oh, that sounds kind of progressive because isn't uh, the ideology of capitalism, the stiff upper lip and privacy and so on? Oh, I must just negate that and then I'll be an anti-capitalist. And they don't realize that things have really moved on from there. Um, But the second thing is about the Communist Manifesto, um, which they all keep going back to. If you go back and have a look at it, the paragraph on the family almost completely... Uh, mirrors the paragraph on the abolition of private property. 
Um, so within capitalism, capitalists abolish already abolish private property for nine tenths of the population. When the capitalists come to dispossess you, as socialists, do we say, yeah, abolish private property? <laughs> no, we fight against that. So when, when they're talking about the fact that capitalism has already destroyed the family, they're not championing that. They're saying this is a really horrible thing that is happening within capitalism. And when capitalists try to come and separate parents from children, this is not a progressive thing that we should all be um, uh, you know, clapping our hands about. Now, I'm not talking about like things like childcare. If people want childcare, it's actually quite a complex issue, but fine. But you know, people will, uh, nobody stood up to defend parents who use corporal punishment in the home because they were like, oh yeah, those parents, they fuck you up. And the only people who stood up against that were like Christian groups. And then, they, and that made the left even more scared to stand up against that. But it is not progressive to invite the capitalist state and the police into people's homes, rip families apart, put people in jail because of the parenting choices that they make. You know, but people have completely lost that. So I'd agree. I mean, I'd agree with you that there is, you know, the so the tendency to see like um, neoliberalism is something that corporations do, you know, bad corporations, bad managers, bad management do, and mm -hmm. therefore, you know, it's kind of it's something which is contained to those choices. And so, if it doesn't directly concern, you know, sweatshops in Bangladesh or something, then um, you know, it's not really kind of connected to it, and therefore there gives that kind of space, like you say, for um, an ideology of social work, which is in or fact if, entirely new. Entirely if the state is intervening, it must be like something progressive and not neoliberal. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Um, but I would but I would also add to what you said, because it seems to me like there's a few, you know, there's some other elements in there, which, so the thing that I think is, is striking about the commentary is it's, um, you know, like it is this kind of middle-class radicalism that is unhinged. I mean, it's so extreme, you know, in its basic sense, um, yeah. without any kind of, um, but detached from any real kind of um, political tension or um, political confrontation in society where you have real kind of questions of um, state power or um, the struggle between classes at stake. So it's this bizarrely kind of disembodied radicalism, um, which is nonetheless kind of extreme. And at the same time, I think they genuinely, you know, their their hostility to family life reflects their also their position. You know, so you have kind of the millennials, um, you know, they don't have, they've been, you know, they've they're not been able to rear, to put together families themselves because of high property prices in the places where they want to live. You know, so that's a genuine thing because generate, you know, their generation rent and all that. They're sexually emancipated from the evils of patriarchy because, you know, they all kind of, are into their online, their um, uh, OnlyFans accounts, right? So they're not actually in kind of relationships or they find it more difficult to kind of form and sustain relationships where child rearing might happen. Um, they don't have, you know, the income and the jobs which they, um, if you look at their kind of life trajectory, their income is less. So they also don't have the kind of capacity to raise kids in the way their parents did. And also they probably, I think, you know, I think this is probably an element of it too, they resent their parents for being... Um, for their longevity. You know, the baby boomers are long li living healthier, longer lives. And so millennials aren't inheriting the assets that would allow them to, um, to uh, you know, kind of uh, participate in life the way they would, they think they're entitled to and the way they would like to, off the basis of what they've been led to expect. 
So I think yeah, all of those things feed into it as well. Yeah. I think that yeah, kind um, of last point is is somewhat, you know, if you want to be really crude about it, is abolish the family equal to sort of kill kill my parents get their get their yeah. property it makes i think that is um, i think that is i think that is essentially what the response to alex's tweet was you know when they me, say yeah. abolish the family they're not talking about kind of fourier and um mid-19th century industrialization what they're really saying is i want to inherit you know i want to kind of inherit from my parents i'm very angry that i can't afford the kind of loft apartment that i think mm. i'm entitled to and the rest of it it makes me think of the film um kind hearts and coronets i don't know if anybody's seen this um it's well it's well worth a watch because i don't is there a way i can can kind of uh not give any spoilers if if maybe just spoiler alert basically this um <clears throat> person finds out that their long lost cousin has died or whatever and they're ninth in line to this um to this fortune and so uh, there are nine characters all played by alec guinness who are in the way and uh, that's the uh the, the starting point. I won't say what happens, but it's very, it's very funny. And I, you know, is that the sort of the position of the contemporary millennial? You could have like millennial strangers on a train meeting. If you kill my parents and I'll kill yours, we can get get the property. <laughs> anyway, this is this is uh, my po my post Christmas uh, thought shouldn't be overinterpreted. Uh, having hosted uh, well, my they... family at Christmas. <laughs> Oh, I have a, I have a love. My my parents had been uh, divorced or not divorced, separated for thirty years, and then just out of nowhere they got back together, and I felt like pretty middle class because I was like, I'm going to visit my parents, plural. Uh, my parents have called, and they and they're all together. Like nothing happened. Oh, you're coming up to see us this Christmas? Um, us? Yeah, uh, your mom and I. My what? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, so but this hostility to family life that you're talking about that's reflected in um, millennials, I think is interesting, but also there's a whole other part of this that makes it kind of understandable in that we've been told that there's this time crunch that you just don't have enough time to be, you know, what you're supposed to be, which is um, a successful CEO. You know, the, the measure of feminism is how many women there are in a boardroom, that sort of thing. And also to be a good mother. Because as we know, motherhood requires that you be very intensive, that you don't just bring your child to the park and then sit there on your phone. Oh, no, no, you get right up there on that park equipment. That's what a good mother does. And you make sure that you do everything right and you give them the organic food and God help you if you take them to McDonald's and give them ready meals. And, and you know, like, oh, there's just not enough time to do both. And this is what Sharon Hayes famously called in the 1990s, the cultural contradictions of motherhood. Um in that you, you're expected to kind of carry both of these things. You're supposed to be an intensive worker and be 100% dedicated to your job, but you're also supposed to be an intensive mother and be 100% mm. dedicated to the task of raising children. And so what happens is that people have completely imbibed this, the underlying ideal, which is um, infant or childhood <coughs> determinism. Um, and that... <coughs> All problems come down to childhood. And there's Marks in the background, which is my dog, uh, getting revenge on the cat that bit him uh, a minute ago. You, you might have to edit this out, but I have to go and uh, engage in corporal punishment just a second. I'm sure that this this Marks is concerned with not the, the class struggle, but a, a prior and more important struggle, that between cats and dogs, which gives the 
animal world it's uh this is the true yeah it's the, kind of that's internal force. dynamism indeed yeah yeah don't don't i mean what are, what are mice then mice are like the they're not like the petty bourgeois they're the lumpen they're not they're not part of it they don't drive things forward no um, see here's the thing socialists like cats but the working class likes dogs if that doesn't give you a sense of the disjuncture i don't know what else does well, oh, then, the, the, cat, the cat owning the cat owning vanguard, um, <laughs> you know, has to raise the consciousness of anyway, etc. Uh, okay, anyways, <laughs> but what I was gonna say is that people end up opting for one or the other. You know, they opt, they opt out. They they say, look, I'm not gonna have children because uh, why would I bring children to this world? But also, they can't really afford it, at least to the extent that you're expected, because motherhood is supposed to be intensive and expensive. Um, or you opt out of work. And you become you 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 um, dedicate yourself entirely because, as people say, motherhood is a full time job. But of course, both of these positions are in a certain way um, deviant that you're not really supposed to do this. You're supposed to try and and act in that live in that contradiction. Anyways, people don't realize this, and so they kind of project all of this back onto the family. Like the family is is the sort they've because they've imbibed this idea of of childhood determinism. Um, that all the problems start in the family and they, oh, it's so important and I need to like do this a hundred percent and I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to opt out. Um, they, you can see why this would then lead to a discourse of like abolish the family because they've kind of had this idea in their minds that the family or childhood or infancy determines your life course. And so everything bad that happens to you, you're invited to think, oh, what did my parents do to fuck me up in this particular way? And so you can see why then millennials, faced with all of these contradictions, would turn against the family. At least some of them would. Hello, listeners. That's the end of the free part of this episode with Ashley Frawley. To listen to the remainder of it, which continues our review of 2022 by looking at the rise in labor militancy, and we also talk about a couple of things to look forward to in 2023, you'll have to sign up at patreon.com slash bungacast. We do hope to see you over there. Bye-bye.